I remember very well my first week in seminary. Uh, speaking of which, the seminary keeps trying to put me on the internet, so if I lose my place, that's <laughs> because the electronics are not my friend today. Okay, I give up. I'll accept. <laughs> See how accepting I am? I remember very well my first week of seminary, and uh, over dinner, before we'd even started classes, I ran, uh, ended up sitting with a group of women, and they started telling me that there were no less than two stories of the creation in the Bible. And I kept thinking to myself, let me think, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, I really don't know what that second one is. And then my first day in Hebrew scripture class, he said, Oh, and by the way, God has many names. And I said to myself, shoot, I only got the first one down. In this discussion this morning, we're going to try to bring two things together that I don't always bring together. As a bivocational minister, you're doing the one or you're doing the other. We're going to try and bring them both together. What we're going to do is bring together a discussion of the book of Ecclesiastes in with my research on the nature of God. Uh, the, our nature of God study is a truly uh, evidence-based study of the nature of God. It starts and ends with research as opposed to starting from a theory or a scripture lesson. Uh, roughly speaking, the hint to all of you is that we'll discuss one from left to right and the other one from right to left. Because Ecclesiastes, you go from left to right. The people don't do a lot of Hebrew scripture around here. <laughs> Help me out with this. Huh? So uh, we're, we're going to kind of go both directions with this thing, and we'll be bivocational, I guess, uh, before we're done. The question is, how do, we, how do we perceive God? And I'm not necessarily talking about the picture sources of God, but I'm really talking about our own self-perception of God. The perceived nature of God and even what we call God offers guidance as to how God's followers will respond both to God and to all of God's creation. Augustine, it's a familiar line, states, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are restless until they rest in thee. When translated into psychology, according to Howard Kleinbell, that simply means, by nature, humanity requires a meaningful relationship with God to be whole. That wasn't Hebrew, that was psychology, for those keeping track of that. The question then is, how do we perceive bad things when they happen? And how do we perceive them in a context? And how do we understand when bad things happen to me? Because after all, I'm always the good person. I've spent now 40 years of my life in either emergency rooms or in flood and disaster areas and that sort of thing. And I've never met a person that referred to themselves as a bad person. And I did spend some time uh, as a chaplain in a, in, in a uh, prison unit. And all of them were all the good people, too. 
So we perceive ourselves as being the good person, so why do bad things happen to good people? You know that is the theodicy question, and that's where I'll start from with all of this. Where various studies suggest that less than a third of people in the United States go to church, synagogue, temple, or mosque, where's the evangelism faculty? They got their work cut out for them, right? Get out there and spread the word, right? Only about a third of folks. And that's been true since somewhere in the 1960s. About a third of people do that. And yet, when you take a look at the numbers of people who believe in God, depends on the study. That's every researcher's out for any number you give. But somewhere between 89 and 95% of the people in this country believe in God. Not so in Europe. I work for a Baptist college, and it's always kind of fun to kind of sneak a look in on the Baptists. <laughs> I, I, I actually have joined one of the Baptist disaster groups because they're doing good work. But um, the, the Baptists are currently sending missionaries over to England because they believe England needs more of Jesus Christ. And I'd have to say, having been in London recently, I'd, I'd agree. <laughs> but that's totally twisted in my mind as to how that should work. The challenge of spirituality that we look at in our everyday lives reflects the difficulty offered by the various attempts to define and to understand what spirituality can mean and what it can look like. And how do we, how do we perceive things? Now I'm coming at this point not from how God perceives us, but how we perceive God. Uh, early in the, somewhere in the 70s, a gentleman wrote a book that was entitled, When God Was Black. And I, I looked at that title and I had to have that book because it was fascinating to me. The, the uh, understanding of that book, what he's trying to convey is not whether God is actually black or actually white. I got thrown out of a church once because they had a picture of Jesus looking awfully Norwegian, standing at the back of the church knocking on the door, you know, the old Jesus at the door knocking picture. And I made some comment like maybe Jesus looked like someone from the Middle East. They were very unhappy with me. But the challenge for us is to understand that if it makes me feel good, if I, am, if I am somehow nourished by thinking of God as black, and I'm black, there's nothing wrong with that. If I want to see God as a woman, and I'm a woman, there's nothing wrong with that. Frankly, if I'm a man and want to see God as a black woman, that's okay too. God is about being there for you not necessarily about being any one of those things. And so in pastoral care and in all of the counseling professions, what we're all about is what's the perception of the person and how does that bring them some sort of a comfort? And, and that's where we start to begin to think about perception and what perception can mean for us within the context of our faith journey. So now I want to convert to reading from right to left, and think with you for a minute about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of a short book, easy to miss, easy to walk over. But it's the only book of the Bible that we know was written by an old person. I'm pretty sure your Hebrew faculty will tell you that many of them were probably 
written down by older adults, that older adults had something to do with them. But Kohaleth, the preacher, comes right out and says, in effect, I'm old. I'm the son of David, which makes him... Thank you. Someone understands the interaction in the congregation. That makes him Solomon. Okay? And if this is Solomon, and this is later in Solomon's life, then what we're getting is the perception of life from the perceived perception of the older adult. So let's take, take, take a minute with me, and let's read the first, first verse of, of Ecclesiastes. It's right there. Okay? Now, say it with me. You all know it. Vanity of vanities, said the preacher. Oh, come on, you people could talk in church, right? <laughs> vanity of vanities, said the preacher. All is vanity. Interesting word, vanity. That's tripped me up my whole life. What does it mean for a person to start out a, a scripture, a, a book of scripture with, boy, am I the least humble and the most into myself kind of person? This is problematic to me. You know what I mean? I, maybe it's because I read the New Testament too much. But this is problematic. But maybe there's another way of reframing it. So I'd ask you to think with me, not necessarily as Hebrew scholars, because it is a little edgy from a Hebrew scholar's perspective, but uh, there are those who have translated it. If you take a look at the, at the key words within the phrase, this word vanity can be translated in other words other than vanity, even though that's, again, the one you'll see the most in the various books. What would happen if we understood the word vanity to mean something more along the lines of uh, temporariness or uh, something that only happens in a moment? Uh, one of the commentators suggested that we should use the phrase, a puff of wind. So now say that, word, that first sentence with me again. A puff of wind, a puff of wind. All of life is like a puff of wind. Now think about that for a minute, and now put it within age grading. Think about it as an aging kind of a thing. When you were five and someone told you that it was December and that Christmas was coming, December takes forever. Right? because time moves slowly when you are young. Go out here to Wesley Village and ask them how quick their lives have gone. Go out there and ask them at the diff distance, because every time they see their grandchildren, it's like somebody got the weed and feed right. It's all in the weed and feed. Sorry, I'm from rural Texas. It's all in the weed and feed, and, and people, people seem to grow. And, and when you look back on life, life has charged forward like a freight train. When you look forward in life, life can move very slowly. Which brings us to the question of time and how time impacts age and aging. Time is a funny thing, right? If you're ever in a boring class, which I know they don't have at Asbury, it can move very slowly. 
When you're in one of those exciting Asbury classes, or Baylor classes, what I nearly said, and that's true too, right? When you're in an exciting class, it seems to move very fast. You can't hardly keep your pencil on the paper or your fingers on the keyboard. Time moves at different kind of paces and different kind of perceptions of time. English teachers will tell you that there are three tenses to time. Do we have any English teachers in the group? I always like to know who I'm insulting. <laughs> English teachers will tell you there are three tenses to time. What are the three tenses to time? Past, present, and future. I'm here to argue with you there are four tenses to time. Past, present, future, and not enough. And if you don't believe in the fourth tense of time, wait till the end of the semester. Students, can you say amen with me? Yeah. So there are four tenses of time, and the fourth tense of time catches up with us. And that's the tense of time that many older adults live in. Because it is their perception. They are looking back at time. Because they've had a lot more past than they have had future. I sat down with a group of persons who were 90 and above. It happened to be a club at a particular senior center. And I said, tell me about your future and what are you looking forward to? And one 89-year-old lady looked at me and she said, I have no future. What's your point? And I said to her, what makes you think you don't have a future? And she said, I'm old. What do you think? And of course, that always brings up the old gerontologist joke. The elderly woman goes to the doctor and says, Doc, there's a problem with my left leg. It hurts a lot. Doctor examines the leg and looks it all over and then finally says, Well, it's a little bit of arthritis, it's a little bit of this, but you're old. What can you expect? And she looks him straight in the eye and she said, Doctor, you see this other leg over here? And he said, Yeah. It's the same age and it doesn't hurt. So what can we expect in our aging? And how does our aging make us who we are? Because the interesting thing about aging is that time really does move along. So let's move on to Ecclesiastes 3. Now, I freely admit when I came to seminary, I hadn't spent much time in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so, to me, it sounded an awful lot like a song by the birds. Bring the sound up a little more. Most of you, I can see from the smiles, don't need to hear the words to understand what I'm playing. But. When you're in high school in the 60s, you just assume this is music, it's not scripture, right? Although I've never been able to find in scripture that turn, turn thing. Maybe that was the pages they were working on. Let's make some more noise. So, if everything has a time, and everything has a season, now, 
You know, they say Presbyterians are Calvinistic, and sometimes I worry about that. In reality, most Presbyterians do not know Calvin as well as you folks know Wesley. I've often envied the Methodist system because they teach Wesley. Well, we have a really bad habit and never kept getting around to teaching Calvin. And of course, coming from a northern Presbyterian school, they taught Calvin. Discovered in Texas, they teach Knox, John Knox. And I like to call John Knox Calvin with an attitude. <laughs> and most of the things that Methodists will throw at Presbyterians as if it, we should own it are Knoxian. They're probably not Calvinist. So that gets us into a problem. But if we think of life as having some kind of predetermination to it, then Ecclesiastes 3 will do the job for you. But if you stop to think about it, if you're moving, if you're looking at life forward, life is an open book. When you're look, looking at life backwards, life's been. Therefore, it is all. For everything, there's been a season and for every time under heaven because everything kind of begins to fit. And the question that people keep asking me is, was my life of any value? Did I do anything in my life that meant anything. I'm sure as the chaplain to Otterbein, you get a lot of those same kind of questions. Why is it? What is it good for? Why did I do this? Where did this all come from? And of course, at times of trouble, we come back to our theodicy question. Why do really bad things happen to good people? It's unsettling when we look back at life to think that maybe it didn't mean much. In and of itself, however, that brings us back to God in ways that, as a social scientist, I've never been quite so terribly clear about. Now I'm going to read from left to right. We're going to change. Okay. Let's think math and statistics. I'm pretty sure that was all y'all's best subject. That's, after all, why we go into ministry. So let's, let's begin to think about how we can understand how people's understanding of God is somehow going to make a connection for us into who we are, whose we are, and what we do. Now I'm pointing in what direction for this? I'm pointing that way. Hey, all right. An amazing thing, it all works. When you begin to study and try to understand the spiritual needs and the God-based needs of older adults, and try to understand why in Ecclesiastes things look differently if you read the book from the eyes of an old person than they do from the eyes of a young person. You begin to understand what, when you start this, this kind of discussion. Historically, all of these discussions started with a concept called religiosity. Seminaries are usually pretty comfortable with religiosity because it talks about the church. And after all, we have some connection to the church. And at that point, that becomes an important thing for us, right? Religiosity scales actually date back into the late 1800s. We can go back to the work of William James. We can go back to all kinds of, uh, of people who many of them have died. I remember Paul Mayes fondly from who died at Otterbein. Um, and uh, David O. Moberg, who is still uh, in a Baptist facility 
in uh, Milwaukee. David O. Moberg insisted that Baptists live longer than everybody else, and he's out to prove it. So God bless the man for all his efforts, right? But uh, it's probably their free-wielding spirit. But historically, what we've talked about is this thing called religiosity. Religiosity are the actions or activities of the works of faith. So it tends to be, I edit a journal, and I see uh, somewhere between 75 and 100 articles that I have to read every year. So you see, you got to think you have it bad for your classes. And, and as I read it, there are hundreds of different definitions of these terms. But for the most part, when you gel them all together, religiosity talks about the church. It talks about the institutional things. It talks about the behaviors of religion. Because when you're a social scientist, you have to measure something. And measuring faith is best done spiritually, not with a, with a statistical program. So the challenge for us is to understand what that might mean. Religiosity talks about uh, the things of the church. Spirituality, on the other hand, is a total unknown. A guy by the name of Harold Koenig from Duke University spends a lot of time trying to talk about what is religiosity, I'm sorry, spirituality, and yet uh, in his most recent handbook of religion, he basically, religion and, uh, religion and health, uh, he comes out and basically says nobody can define it, therefore we don't quite know what it is, but it seems to have something to do with personal faith. And if you ask people the question, it turns out it, the response is generational. Because older adults look at the term spirituality, which it's certainly permeated since about the 1990s, our society reasonably well. Older adults look at that and they'll say, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. That must be what that is. If you go out on the West Coast and ask young people, they're talking about the trees and the flowers and, you know, like that. Different perceptions and concepts of what is spiritual in our lives. And they're both right, because if it's personal, then I get the right to make my own decision on that. If the church tells me it's one thing, I'll go with the church. But if it's personal, then it becomes more personal. What we found in our research is that Generation Xers and uh, the Millennials take a very free look at what is spiritual, uh, and often see it as this kind of personal understanding that God is somewhere. Now, interestingly enough, with all the discussion about take, taking religious symbols out of our city halls and whatnot, only 10% in most polls of people are atheists or one of the non-believing groups. And so you, you get into uh, all of these battles about what that might mean, but even the folks in I study when we ask them, do you believe in God, some portion of people who don't believe in church, synagogue, temple, or mosque do believe in God. God is out there. God is sustainable. There is a third definition that's thrown around sometime. It's called spiritual well-being, and I don't have the time to get into the definition of it, but it was a political compromise in order to bring religion into the 1971 White House Conference on Aging, and therefore has its problems. So traditionally, what you sort of expect me to talk about are these images of God. I have very carefully taken these from many different faith traditions to remember that God gets perceived of in a lot of different ways. 
But I want to talk about four ways of thinking about God that come out, come out of our data and that, interestingly enough, connect with depression, anxiety, and stress. What happened was that in the, uh, somewhere around 2008, uh, Baylor University's religion department is working on a longitudinal study on religion. And in their longitudinal study of religion, what they discovered was that uh, you could take two variables. Remember, this is left to right. This is your math brain, right? It's sort of over here on the left side, for those of you who've forgotten it. And you can take two variables. And one of them is engagement with God. How engaged is God in the world? The other one is God's judgment. How judgmental is God? At the nexus or the combination of those two graphics, what you get are then it falls into four categories of who God is. I'm going to get my phone out one of these days and reverse it so I can make sure I don't have to look over my shoulder. The authoritative God is the one that's up in that top corner. Remember the, the square. It's up in the top. It's over here. That's the authoritative God. What we found, the original study said that 31% of their sample fell into this group. In my study, I did a uh, random national sample of uh, 1,045 people. The original study had 1,400 people in it. Uh, the original study was done by Gallup. I did mine with uh, a different vendor, but it's the same. It's a Gallup-style poll. And what we found was that about 25% of the sample uh, believe in this authoritative God. Uh, let me move around for numbers very quickly because time is in its fourth house. Um, the benevolent God is around 24 in our study. The one that's underlined is 26. In the critical God, 16% in the original study. It's 30% in ours. Uh, and the distant God is 24 or 17% of God. The authoritative God is the God that... Uh, uh, Americans who believe in, in this God are both engaged in the world and judgmental. Uh, this is the God of the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, if you think about the pattern, God loves Israel, Israel messes up, God punishes Israel, God re-embraces Israel. You get the pattern? I had a, a couple that came to me, uh, I had two strikes against me. I was training a group of folks on disaster behavioral health, and I had introduced myself as a Presbyterian minister from Baylor. And this couple came up to me and they said, well, we sent our daughter to Baylor as a good Christian school, uh, and she met a Presbyterian minister, and now, uh, now she's gay. I assure you that not every Presbyterian minister that you meet will help you with that conversion. Uh, it's not an instant connection, but the, uh, uh, they said, we are praying that God will punish her severely and make everything bad in the world come down upon her so that he, God can bring her back to a life of faith. 
That's one of those times, by the way, if anybody's keeping track, you kind of shut your own mouth up and you nod a lot, right? Because this is a family of great conviction. It turns out this, this family believes in this authoritative God, a God who will send bad things to uh, New Orleans in order to clean up its act, a God who will send things in order to make change in the world. This is this authoritative, strong belief in God. The next kind of God is called the benevolent God. And the benevolent God is one where folks can see God's handiwork pretty much everywhere. God is ma mainly a force of good. God would never send a bad thing to a person. Presbyterians have a committee working on that, and I understand they're coming to that conclusion. I like to refer to this image of God as the footprints in the sand God. And that's the, the typical chaplain's response when someone says, why does this bad thing happen to me? And your response is, I don't know, but I do know that God is here and walking with you. That's the benevolent image of God. And that's the one that we people are looking for. The next image of God is the critical God, and remember this is back over on the judgmental side, but this is the less active image of God. In this concept, the less active image of God, this is the person who basically believes that God doesn't have much to do with the world. God's just kind of hanging out out there someplace, but God will get even when you die. original authors of this concept use the analogy of one of the previous popes, not the current one, who, uh, who was down in South America and said, you see all those really nice houses up on the hill? Those are the drug lords, and they may look like they're having the high life now, but they're going to hell. At the end of life. Now, if you ever wanted to do work in chaplaincy, this is a group of cooks to pay attention to. Uh, there's an old joke among gerontologists. A little boy goes to his mother and says, why is Grandpa always reading the Bible? Mother looks kindly at her son, and she says, he's studying for final exams. That's the critical God figure, who doesn't do much in this life, but watch out for the next one, because things are going to get, <laughs> why not say it, I'm from Texas, hot. Then there's the distant God. This God isn't active in the world and isn't fairly judgmental, and so this is the creator God who basically quits. I like to refer to this as the bowler God. God takes up the ball, puts it, squares it off to the pins, and then runs it down home. And you know what? Unless you're into Zen bowling, no matter how much of this you do, it doesn't do much. For the bowler God, God creates systems in the world, and those systems in the world are to take care of it. Therefore, the answer to the theodicy question for this group is humans, humans have corrupted the system. God put perfect systems out there, and they got messed up along the way. This is about as close to a process theology God as you can come to. God is within rather than beyond the subject-object structure, uh, and, but is uh, clearly the greatest among us.
My time is, is close to the end, but let me begin to show you the ramifications of this. I'm going to do that by the old trick that everyone hates, and that's the one where I zoom ahead quickly. Okay, because what we found is that for the authoritative God, highly, uh, folks are highly religious and spiritual, um, but they use both positive and negative religious coping. We don't have time to really go into religious coping. But religious coping is all about how you turn to God at times of trouble. Religion, as a category, is the strongest coping mechanism at times of trouble, bar none. People go to it first, they hang on to it first. But there are those who perceive it as God's punishment, as God has forgotten me, God is not walking with me, there's no God here for me. That's negative religious coping. Positive religious coping is where we, in effect, transform human tragedy into God's will. It's where we change our perception of things to God is walking with me as opposed to I'm alone and the world has just dumped on me. The authoritative God will tend to use both. But let me skip down to the critical God because they almost exclusively only use negative religious coping. This group is mad at God because after all, where is God to the critical God, folks? This is the group for whom God is not very active. And this group, this critical God group, have by far the highest levels of depression, anxiety, and stress. God is not in their lives and they're mad about it. The authoritative God folks are looking for justice in the world and looking for the just God. The critical God folks are looking for uh, uh, basically just to be mad at God. The distant God people aren't really sure where God is anyway, and therefore they're, they're sort of the distant folks from the equation. The benevolent God group have the least, are the least likely to have depression, anxiety, or stress. And they're the most likely to be using positive religious coping. Now what do we get from all of that? Let's take ourselves back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the interesting thing about Methodists and Presbyterians is that they all put a clock back there so you can time yourself on your sermon. I worry about the congregation, though, that puts the clock behind the preacher. <laughs> that way they can keep track of how long I'm preaching. But the, uh, the, the, when you think about the book of Ecclesiastes, if life has gone by in a big hurry and you're looking back on life, then where do you find comfort? For the benevolent God viewer, you find comfort in believing that God walked through you your entire life. For the authoritative God, you are looking for God's justice in the plan. There's a problem or a disconnect here, folks. All of pastoral care literature is written for the benevolent God, folks. It's not written for the authoritative God, folks. And I run into chaplains from time to time uh, who themselves believe in an authoritative God, but they espouse, when they have run into the problems, they will espouse the benevolent God concept. But it doesn't work. I had a student come into my office. She was 22 years old. 
and she had a peanut allergy that was so bad that to be downwind from a peanut, she would go instantly into anaphylactic shock. And so we had to have, our school of social work had to be a peanut-free zone. And when you have poor college students around, that's a tough one, I gotta tell you. But they did it, and she graduated from our program. But she sat in my office one day and she said, why did God do this to me? Was it something that my parents did? She said, I'm too young to have made this many mistakes. Was it my parents? Was it my grandparents? After all, my grandfather was sort of shady. What, what could possibly God be punishing me for? And I instantly went into, I don't know why these bad things happen, but God is walking with you. And it was as if I was spitting in the wind. She could not hear me. Because all she was looking for was this justice of God and all I had to offer her was that God was walking with her. The next step in our research, for those of you who are about to say, so how do we fix this? Next step in my research is that. <laughs> we are doing qualitative studies, talking to people to try to get a better handle on what folks are looking for. But if we're right that this judge's scenario is being played out for what is often the largest subgroup of people, then what they're looking for is for God to send bad things in order to clean up the world. The question from a pastoral care perspective is how do you minister with that? How do you help people find comfort? And that's the challenge. And of course, as an evangelical Christian, I would say to you, the hard thing for me is to work with the folks who do not have an active God. Why pray if God isn't gonna respond anyway? To me, that's the hardest group as a chaplain to work with. But as a chaplain, you walk into the room and you work with everybody. And it just is what it is. So I'll leave you with the concept of a God who is changing, of a God who is seen by different people in different ways. The interesting thing about this concept is it works for all the sons and daughters of Abraham. It works every bit as well in Islam as it does in Judaism. Uh, in Islam, the authoritative God is huge. Uh, it, it skews the numbers, but each of these four gods are present in the lives of each one of these religious traditions because they are theistic. There is a God uh, within it. Be that as it may, the, the question of Ecclesiastes then is what does it mean? And what does it mean is really the answer to the question of how has God taken care of me all of my life and how have I then been Christ's servant in this place. Because when I look back on it, at the end of the day, as many people as I have walked with in their final moments, and I will tell you back in the 70s, that was a lot easier than it is today. There were less machines back then. But when you walk with people to their death, they will never look at you and say, shoot, I should have bought a bigger car. Daggone it, I should have added on to the house. If only I had been the boss, I could have. What do they talk about? At the end of life, what people talk about are their families, their relationships. It is the transcendent nature of God. The word spirit in German is the word geist. And according to Viktor Frankl, it depends on which of the suffixes you put on the end of it. Because if you stay, say geistig or geistlied, one of them in psychology we would call self-transcendence. The other one is relationship to the divine. Same word, spirit, different suffix. 
In that context, then, how do we help people to walk with their understanding of God, and how do we help them to see God walking with them in their lives? Because at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he basically doesn't say, well, this is what the life map looks like, and this is how you all ought to do it. What he says is turn to God and keep him ever close. So I would leave you with two pieces of advice. One, embrace God, live in the moment with God, and understand who God is in your life. My second point comes from a discussion I had with a 104-year-old man. Whenever you're with someone over 100, the question you always have to ask them is, so how did you live to be so old? And he looked at me and he said, never stop breathing. When you get to your final exams, friends, keep that advice. It's good advice. Thank you so much.